uh, actually it's overtreatment uh, if you start putting somebody with a tumor into a stroke bed with thrombolysis and 24 seven, uh, very expensive monitoring yep. uh, when it's not necessary because the patient is not sort of healing over and dying. Well, that, but that was your, your MVP in the beginning or? Yeah, that was the MVP. That actually was the first version of the product that we've developed. Welcome back to Deep Tech Stories, the podcast making creators, entrepreneurs, and idealists in the deep tech space accessible and pulling the tech from the lab into the real world. In the second part of Deep Tech Stories, we dive into the founding story of Cerebrio and how Robert Lauritsen and his co-founders struggled with COVID and GDPR, making it nearly impossible to get their software past hospital management and into scanners. So it's 2018 and Robert and his co-founders just came together to form Cerebru with six months of runway. Over the last years of his career, Robert learned how to manage hundreds of people spread across the globe and eventually became self-employed as a consultant. When starting Cerebru, he was able to put all of that knowledge into action and use the money he saved up from his face as consultant to fund the company together with his co-founders. The problem is, six months of runway is not terribly much. So they very quickly had to come up with a MVP, a minimal viable product, and increase their runway quickly. After a couple of weeks of, of workshops with Radiality, we pivoted from, from uh, doing biomarker quantification and, and uh, neurodegenerative disease like dementia, Alzheimer's, to a workflow company and redesigned the value proposition and raised more money because the idea seemed to be interesting. Uh, raised another six months, uh, uh, got to a point where we had sort of a basic minimal viable product, uh, a prototype that could sort of function, had a lot of workshops with several hospitals. What was the product? Uh, the, we called the product Apollo. We actually, started out as the project name because we and <laughs> wanted to have something uh, that that had a, a sort of a, an interesting resonance that we could use. Now it's apparently the product name because we forgot to rebrand. But uh, but it's uh, it's fine. It's called we call it Apollo. It's it's a brain MRI automation workflow automation uh, mm -hmm. product. It's a piece of software that can operate independently in emergency departments or elective imaging with a range of, of potential uh, value propositions depending on the context of the hospital. So it's running in the emergency department and a pilot at Harlow uh, here in Copenhagen, which is about uh, acute stroke, rule in, rule out, 24-7. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and stroke mimics, specifically be able to identify stroke mimics like tumors and hemorrhages to adapt the imaging protocol there, but also to potentially reduce the length of stay because you don't need, to, uh, actually it's over-treatment uh, if you start putting somebody with a tumor into a stroke bed with thrombolysis and 24 seven, uh, very expensive monitoring yep. uh, when it's not necessary because the patient is not sort of healing over and dying. Well, that, but that was your, your MVP in the beginning or? Yeah, that was the MVP. That actually was the first version of the product that we've developed. So mm -hmm. we've further developed that, but it's really the core of what we're doing. And that was all the, uh, the postdoc that wrote all the code. Yeah, I mean, initially we, but we did hire developers to help out. I mean, so we're not sort of, we're, we're a bigger team. We started engaging obviously with medical professionals, uh, radiogra radiographers, radiologists on image uh, annotation and data. Mm -hmm. uh, machine learning is data hungry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's need to have data, but uh, but it's uh, it's not, 
It's not like making a cat identification uh, thing where you can just Google a million cats and then you can start training on, on cat identification or detection, but really uh, extremely limited data sets uh, and, and, and sort of semi-supervised training based on, on medical training or medical annotation of these images to help uh, guide the, the learning process and mm -hmm. then validating as many places as possible and that we could afford and overcome to move towards the idea of becoming modality and demographic agnostic. Right? So it should work on all people from all parts of the world, on all kinds of scanners, uh, uh, all kind of clinical use scanners, at least, you know, uh, 1.5 no. or 3 Tesla, et cetera, uh, so that we can productize it, uh, regulatory, get clearance for it for market, uh, commercialization, and then start selling. How did you handle the uh, GDPR? Because in the end, you were going to deal with patient data, which tends to be very... Yeah, so all different. Yeah, I yeah, know. Super, super good question. So GDPR is, is a, an interesting beast, but uh, but certainly uh, the basis of all data that we get access to is is to the extent at all possible de-identified. But we are, of course, uh, having uh, controls, especially when we have clinical use, uh, to make sure that we are managing access and all that according to GDPR. So we have data processing agreements and all that in place where we have that kind of access. But otherwise, we we do ensure that data is de-identified before we access it for annotation and training. Mm -hmm. uh, and de-identified in this case would be stripping all sort of personal uh, identifiable information. Did you have any issues in the beginning with convincing the hospitals for yes. giving your data? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it de depends very much on where you are in the world, how they handle that. Um, it took us nearly three years to get a useful data pr processing agreement with uh, the Danish uh, public institutions. That, that effectively we would have not have survived as a company yeah. if we were dependent on the local environment in which we're born. Yeah. Fortunately, other parts of the world are more flexible, including the US uh, to some extent and, and India, where, which were the two locations we got data from first. Mm -hmm. Now eventually we're getting data from Denmark, we're getting data from South America, from part, other parts of Europe, from Israel. And many of these have been, you know, year plus, one year plus to get through all the security and data processing uh, stuff. I mean, just the uh, administrative uh, burden on making sure that everyone is happy. Yep. It's, a, it's a very, very long and cumbersome process, which is, I think there's an increased focus on becoming more flexible across Europe with the EU Commission uh, launching something about a year ago around the medical technology or health tech. Yep. Uh, and specifically using AI in, in this space and understanding that, that there's an inherent polarity between um, the basic principles of GDPR, which is data minimization, and the more or less to high degree correlation between data maximization and, and generalizability and performance accuracy of, of mm. machine learning. Sort of a massive dilemma to work with, which is, which is uh, really complicated. What do you say? Did you de-identify the data? Is that just the patient ID is gone or all information about the patient is, is gone? Well, we try to find a relevant balance. So, so gender, for instance, can have an influence. I mean, it's not, uh, it's not to touch on, on equal rights, but, but literally there are sort of uh, gender influencing. Uh, besides, uh, obviously, that part of the body that is very gender specific, there are different anatomy and anatomical structures look relatively different or, or worked relatively different. So you have to have 
some demographic uh, information in there. Uh, so that's not necessarily de identified. So age category, for instance, mm -hmm. there's also a huge difference on, for instance, a brain of a child and a brain of a nine year old and the balance of white and gray matter and all that stuff. Uh, so, so we need some demographic information uh, to the extent possible. Some element of ethnicity or sub-ethnic ethnic groups, uh, but that information is is not available normally and readily in the in the kind of data that we can access. Mm -hmm. So we do f source you know data from all over the world to get some sort of mix, but it's not really that easy to to map out exactly. Um, and there's different prevalences on different pathologies on different demographic groups. That's yep. just the reality. And the there's between different. MRI scanners between Denmark and India. There's yeah, so so that's more a vendor thing. So there are differences between the MRI vendors, the MRI vendors, different models and the different versions of those models through time, the different versions of the software through time, and especially within MRI, which is the one of the most complicated and varying modalities in diagnostic imaging. Because I I know from quite my, substantial. I from know from my partner that she. So she tries to do something similar in automation for pathology with mm -hmm. cancer cells and mm -hmm. images. And then it depends on the pathologist that stains the cells, how strongly it's stained and what the labeling is, but also it depends within the same pathologist from day to day. Yeah. And it's just it's a complete mess to figure out how to average across everything properly so that the signal flashes in the, the right amount. Yeah. Yeah, I think there, there are so many parameters that have can have a significant influence on on how images and different intensities, you know, high burn, high burn intensities uh, map out, which is the characteristics that sort of uh, flash up uh, and to identify the sort of a specific a specific pathology or finding, and and that of course is is part of the challenge, right? That's getting enough data, enough enough data variance, being able to annotate at a high enough quality, and then go out and then validate across many different data sets. Nope. So that's why we are validating in three or four continents at this point. It's really to see if we can get an idea of how, gen how generalizable we are at this stage. Mm -hmm. And then of course, to continually improve. That's effectively what we need to do. And what's the, the current status on that? <laughs> yeah, so we are, we are some way on the road. Uh, certainly we're not superhuman at this stage, but we also see, uh, and now we start doing comparative human studies to get it because no hospital really knows what their level of quality is. It's kind of not really a thing uh, that the, with with such a high workload, it's, there's not a lot of hospitals that go around doing Quality double check, yeah. double checking on on the on the accuracy of the of the radiologists. So, so we're looking at a comparable performance uh, or, or or varying around comparable performance of the human reader. Mm -hmm. But what we, of course, want to get to is is through training and training and training. Is and that's where we can train at an accelerated rate compared to humans, is to become superhuman, right? Which means that we'll be to higher degree adopted and accepted by the humans uh, that are relying on this kind of technology to provide some some supportive guidance. Yep. But at the end of the day, we're also not. Uh, thinking that we can exclude the human reader. I think we need to have the human reader because there's so many other data points uh, that are not necessarily identifiable in uh, in imaging alone, right? So there are other clinical data points that can be significant in the interpretation, mm -hmm. at which point we're not at all uh, there to be able to fully automate that. 
And that will be another 10 to 20 years, I think, before we get, get closer to that. So, um, and even then, you know, uh, what we're looking at is how can we expand access to diagnostic imaging? That's sort of the overarching mission, right? Uh, yep. Today, only about one out of 10 in the population anywhere in the world, you know, in our part of the world or anywhere else, effectively has access. Unless we're talking about emergency, it takes, you know, five months to get a brain scan and go paying. That's just reality. Yep. Or in the U.S., if you have thousands of dollars, you can even pay to get access, right? So so what we're looking at is how can we get more affordable access to everyone? Mm-hmm. The only way we can do that with the limitation of qualified medical professionals is to automate. Yep. It's the only way we can do that. So software is, is the paradigm of the future of these devices, not more advanced hardware. There's enough information in there. Yeah, so that's what we're, I mean, that's a lot of what R&D are working on, or at least the research part of it we call, I mean, the research part of it is about building the medical intelligence and development is more like the integration into a mm-hmm. platform accessible by people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and sort of a, in an explainable way. Um, but, so but how long, because you said you had half a month, uh, half a year of, of runway and you had your oh, yeah. co-founders and all the other developers you hired. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so um, how long how long did it take until the MVP was done and until well, we the first money back? We actually we actually pref- so we got the I guess the the closest thing to a functional MVP that we got was just before COVID outbreak. So we get did get a, a CE mark under MDD mm-hmm. early twenty. I lined up, you know, conference uh, at uh, European Congress of Radiology and various pilots and all that stuff. But then everything, of course, changed in yep. March uh, 2020, uh, which was quite devastating for us because we were also raising, I was just raising the an actual seed and not these uh, six months uh, runway business angel kind of uh, extensions. Yep. Uh, so that was, that was, uh, that was a pretty uh, stressful time. Uh, we did, uh, we did not pivot, but we did uh, go out and, and do a lung x-ray project with the Innovation Fund support. There were a lot of papers back then on lung x-ray for COVID diagnosis. Exactly. So, so we were looking at, but we were looking at it from a, a health system risk stratification approach. Uh, so we were looking at not sort of, I mean, obviously there was a capability around the sort of in-process uh, smart protocol or the not necessarily smart protocol, what we call, but this sort of immediate detection. Uh, but what we were looking at is how could we get an overview of the and prognose the the pathway of specific you know, respiratory patients arriving at the hospital, and then figuring out what is the likelihood of them needing to be admitted, needing an ICU or even respiratory support during that state at the front line, you know, with the X-ray operator, uh, do that immediate read and then do the triaging of patients there, but providing and accumulating that information for a healthcare system to understand the, the load in different demographic areas mm-hmm. or regions to better balance uh, patient and workforce load. So it's really a, a risk and stratification and business intelligence solution more, I think, based on the approach of what we're doing uh, with this sort of immediate scan. But but of course, it was a the route compared to our sort of primary mission but it was a, a, a sort of a survival thing. <laughs> so it got you through through COVID. So it helped us through COVID, but it also delayed stuff for us, right? Because we yeah. spent uh, most of 2020 doing stuff that was not related to our core uh, technology and product. 
but yep. uh, but we made some interesting tech, and then of course you know data processing and ethics approval uh, finally got through. Uh, sort of uh, after COVID uh, reopened <laughs> everything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, proceed. You know, one and a half years later, so completely irrelevant. Uh, it's not completely irrelevant, but there's a, it's a red ocean. I mean, X-ray, chest X-ray, and and uh, lung CT and stuff like that is like uh, the most crowded space in imaging. No. Yep. So actually, effectively, we had a functional MVP in 2020. We had done some clinical testing, so we got the CE mark in place, so we could actually do a clinical installation. What uh, is the CE mark? CE mark. Well, so it's so medical devices are uh, regulated mm-hmm. by the authorities uh, in Europe. It's it's uh, the European Medical Agency that's uh, requiring that medical technology, uh, medicine, et cetera, uh, applied in Europe for clinical practice is uh, quality controlled and and to some extent, depending on the type of device, cleared or registered or whatever it may be. So effectively, we are building software as a medical device. We are ISO ISO 13485 uh, certified, which means we have a quality management system. We adhere to certain uh, uh, standards. Yep. We, we perform uh, you know, clinical testing and, and, and have some diagnostic performance, blah, 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 that provides some utility that is part of the evidence that we bring to market. Yep. So CE is effectively the label that you end up getting. It's like, okay, this is fit for use in the market. Yeah. So it's uh, not necessarily a selling point, but a requirement. Yeah, it's not a selling point at all, but it's it's a prerequisite yeah. uh, right, to, to do any sort of com- any marketing and any sales. Uh, in the US, it's FDA. Uh, so there are varying, various clearing bodies, just like with medicine or whatever mm-hmm. you have. You cannot just sell a drug in the US. You have to get an FDA clearance or market approval for that drug. Yep. But uh, but it does require you to get access to a hospital, and and obviously during COVID, uh, all access was denied for right. anything that was not life critical, <laughs> and new technology was not. Uh, so so we did have a sort of the rest of 2020 was spent on on getting better and and doing sort of the debut down the chest X-ray, and then we got back on track late 2020 into early 21. And during this period, uh, we had also been, and that was exploring sort of strategic partnerships, working with some of the OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers, the ones that provide scanners or build scanners and provide them commercially to the world. And we ended up working with the headquarters of Siemens mm-hmm. in Germany as the sort of the first, this is also published uh, PR. So there we are looking at, at, uh, at bringing the scanner to life, <laughs> so to speak. So we are really looking at integrating our software into the Siemens scanners mm-hmm. for global distribution. Are uh, they in, in Erlangen by any chance? They're in Erlangen, yes, yes exactly. University. That's your old yeah. university? Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. So you probably have been a guinea pig like everyone else from Erlangen University. <laughs> At some point in time in some Siemens uh, setting. Yeah, yeah. so so we're working with the Erlangen team on, on uh, and that we've been, basically we, we, we formalized the partnership in the summer of 21, Mm-hmm. Uh, and then started uh, building uh, and redesigning the system to be able to fit into the MRI, which was uh, more substantial than the, the initial <laughs> uh, thinking uh, from the from the early workshops. Uh, and that's basically where we are now, where we are moving into clinical testing yep. after a new year. That means that we're going into hospitals in Asia and Europe and in the U.S., to test over the next many months uh, and get sort of user feedback and tune uh, the sort of integrated solution 
uh, and then to uh, to get regulatory clearance uh, next year, and we can go to market and launch. Okay, so you only with Siemens. Yeah. yeah. So you not profitable yet because there's no no real. We do have some revenue, but we have a standalone solution, but we have not focused very much on that. Yeah. Uh, because it does not scale very well. It's incredibly uh, slowly and 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 long lead time. So as you know, if you imagine the data pr protection and data processing you have to get in place, and then not for everyone, cybersecurity, then you have to get the infrastructure and get through IT. Mm -hmm. So you have to get the clinics convinced. Then you have to discuss uh, use and adoption in the clinics. So how do you how do you distribute the technology so it's accessible? Yep. Then you have to get hardware, and you know, for now our average track record it takes nearly a year to get a server into a hospital. Yeah. Right. So you see. So and then you have to get it tested. That's another six months. Uh, then you might be able to negotiate a deal. Then you have to hit the right budget cycle uh, for a hospital. So so the average sort of sales turnaround time is probably two or more years from initial contact to to some sort of revenue, and that's typically on a pilot basis or a small uh, yeah. before scaling. So instead, rather try to get into the this kind of itself. Yeah, so so that would provide a completely different distribution platform. Yep. Because there it's download to the scanner and then it can run. Right. So there's still, of course, instruction or implementation in the hospital. Mm -hmm. But you you cross a lot of bad barriers uh, by being in a predefined, secure and data protected uh, context, and with a near zero distribution and deployment uh, overhead. Of course, you still have to get the message out there. You still have to create the demand and 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 implement it in clinical practice. But mm -hmm. that's sort of the the core of what we can then focus on, and that will cut away you know one to two years of of uh, lead time. Yep. Um, plus, of course, uh, a completely different scale and access uh, to hospitals uh, than we would have. But the market here has also transitioned the past couple of years towards platform approach, which means that the emerging uh, providers that are that are specializing in establishing AI infrastructures on hospitals to reduce the time to deployment yep. distribution to the hospitals by you know, taking the six to 12 months of IT hassle out. Yep. Um, and that is sort of a new trend, be. but it's still a time off before there's a consolidate. There will be some sort of consolidation in the market because yeah. all the hospitals they can't have 200 independent small feature like <laughs> vendors, but they can't have you know 10 different platform providers either. It will just be a mess, right? Yep. And I, I would think that taking the IT hassle away is probably the the smallest issue of getting into independent hospitals. If I think about all the the admin and regulations and the budget cycle. Yeah, but IT is a substantial barrier. I mean, I come from an IT background, so it can be quite uh, a long time to get a small system in. So if you're building like a massive infrastructure, like an SAP setup, or you're doing something else uh, like that, it's not necessarily, I mean, it's a big project, but the, it will be managed and supported and you'll get adequately resourced for it. But getting a small system in and a pilot in a hospital where you still have to get through the, the IT organization, all the security checks and all that, that is a super substantial okay. effort compared, yep. to the, compared to the wanted outcome, right? So that's a very big real barrier for most companies in our space, actually, mm -hmm. which is, you know, you can only underestimate. <laughs> yeah, clearly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you expect to be profitable at some point or 
Yeah, of course. I mean, there's a huge focus on the capability or the business plan on becoming profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, but at this stage, it's not at all the focus. I mean, it, it is completely uh, not happening early stage for this kind of uh, company yep. to become profitable because of the massive investments of getting there. Um, but of course, generating revenue and, and moving in a, in a direction which could become quite profitable. But here, most likely, whatever potential profits we could have, we would spend on on expanding our product portfolio into other body parts mm-hmm. and potentially other modalities. But then you're in in seed phase or stage or whatever they're all called. I guess that we're closing around now, which is uh, most would call a, a Series A. Yeah, uh, we haven't really labeled it. I must admit, there's so many varying factors on when what is called what. Uh, I don't know if there's really a standard. But I guess it's closest to what most companies in this space have raised as a Series A. Mm-hmm. For the for the uninitiated like me, can you explain what the so between the seed and, and stage A? So like seed A, uh, seed is only ideation, and then stage A, you have a working product, or yeah, that's a really good question. So that's that's where there are many parameters, and they're varying quite a lot, right? So there are companies uh, that have you know completely pre-cleared basically an idea and still do a Series A. Right. Okay. So if you're making uh, biologics, if you're making some sort of molecular thingy that you can sell off to pharma at some point in time, you could be raising a quite substantial, like a 20 or 30 million Series A. In our space, typically there's some level of regulatory uh, clearance or there's a, you know, a path, clear pathway and a clear product market fit. Can be some revenue, but not necessarily very substantial. Mm-hmm. Then it would be a Series A. But the seed is always something where it's really just trying to build a, a minimum viable product, get some sort of validation in the market, uh, get some some uh, some preliminary clinical use and pilots and stuff like that, right? So it's typically, with our kind of space, more sort of pre-commercial, and we are moving into to transforming from more or less pure R&D into uh, to a commercial yep. uh, operation. And that requires substantially more from figuring it out to cash, from figuring out to saying, okay, now we start selling yep. and really proving uh, the business and the scale will come with the integration and the distributors, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, a small company from Copenhagen, Denmark will have a big challenge on, uh, on you know, reaching global distribution. Yep. So I was looking around on your website and I was coming across this code of ethics that you have on there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which... I haven't seen anywhere else, and I want no. to figure out why that is on there and why it specifically only mentioned software engineers. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so we also, so I guess generally when we started the company, we had some potential investors that that we discussed with some of our hospital partners. Us bring in those investors, and there were some uh, some some challenges in the background or some of the other interests that some of these investors had which drove us to sort of define some ethical standards of how we would operate more clearly. And in that part of our journey, I think the early formation of the company, being health tech and with sort of a desire to uh, do good, it's it's also about choosing all partners uh, with care. Um, and I think that was sort of the main driver for, for having any sort of published ethical policy. We also wanted to more clearly support the, the UN Sustainability Development Goals with uh, becoming a UN Compact uh, partner, uh, etc., to clearly sort of support, um, uh, to some extent, all the, the besides healthcare, which is obviously uh, improving 
health and and uh, and life in general, also to to work on other aspects of that environmental impact and uh, equal rights and what have you. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I guess we did also uh, with a PhD on explainable AI and stuff. We did have some discussions around sort of how we were operating. And wanted to send a clear signal also to our partners in terms of, I mean, because we were very much R&D in terms of how we wanted to work. Uh, Organization, company and hospital partners. Yeah, exactly. Like typically hospitals or, you know, university hospitals, whatever. So that it was quite obvious that we had an outlook which was with an ethical compass Mm -hmm. um, on what we did. And and being more or less an engineering company, that was the sort of the foundation that we could find that was most appropriate uh, and easy to adopt. Okay. Uh, because there's not a lot of other frameworks available out there. Sort of the IEEE uh, ethical code of ethics or whatever for for engineering was was a good starting point, right? So we want to make sure that we are because consistently th- considering ethical ethical aspects, and and remember when we're making technology, and this is medical devices, uh, although it's software, anything we do with hospitals goes through ethical review boards and what have you. Anyway, yeah. right? So we always have the ethical question: what we do, what we bring to the table, what are the potential implications and pitfalls of what we do, right? So 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 therefore, it makes sense, I think, for us to have that. Um, and and we put it in there really just to have a coherent picture of of some of the underlying value drivers of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important always to have, uh, and we did actually also participate in developing standards around what in Denmark I think was an initiative called the Ethical Compass. So we did some workshops around that uh, last year uh, with an organization that's facilitating that across industry, but but generally tech. Which was which was really good because it perspectivizes some of the stuff and some of the assumptions that we may do and the hypothesis we may do, where we have to remember to also challenge what it is, what the implications can be. I mean, what can be taken for granted? That's an important aspect of what we do. That's one of the last questions. Once you've got your system into Siemens, yeah. Afterwards, what's uh, what comes next besides more MRI scanners and others? <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a good question. So I think, I mean, we definitely want to collaborate with other OEMs and build uh, our technology into their mm-hmm. uh, scanners. But we also want to expand our... What is OEM? And OEM is an original equipment manufacturing, so it's a scanner. Okay. Well, the companies that make scanners, OEM is, is just a label of for anyone who is sort of a player in a specific field. Okay. Right, so... Uh, but they, they, they make scanners and we would like to help them make better scanners yep. and we would like to do that with the other scanner providers as well mm-hmm. and then of course to extend and improve on the the current product within brain so the next one we're making is is more around uh, and more specific for stroke and stroke care uh, but then we'll move into other body parts as well to start uh, when we get funding for that but for, for 23 it's about going to market with the best possible product yep. for brain and and sort of changing the paradigm that's the uh, part of the journey mm-hmm. finding early adopters and, and start uh, start the transformation which is a substantial uh, task for a, for a small company to be part of good luck thanks <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this episode of deep tech stories if you enjoyed it don't forget to subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcast may it be Spotify, 
or Google Podcasts or Apple iTunes. Any bit of support, any bit of sharing to your friends or families or coworkers that you think might enjoy deep tech content really, really helps and is greatly appreciated. You'll be hearing back from me in two weeks when I interview Hampus Jakobson on how his internal curiosity eventually led him to co-found a climate VC called Pale Blue Dot in Malmö. Thank you.